best money we've ever had. With a different kind of money comes a different kind of car. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery 
in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car creams into the sidewalk and takes her out. Good morning. Don't say it's meaningless. Let me go stand up there. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Good morning, Jake. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Jake? Hello, Jake. Hello, Jake. Good morning, Jake. Good morning, Jake. Can you hear me, Jake? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Jake? Good morning, Jake. Can you hear me, Aaron? Hi, Aaron. But can you hear the microphone, Aaron? Can you hear me, Aaron? Can you hear what I'm saying, Aaron? Can you hear me, Aaron? Yes, good morning. I will good morning, good morning. Good morning. Okay. You take from me. I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I I sing a song to the one who's all I
morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. Several announcements as we get started. One, our beloved pastor is missing one of his iconic vests, uh, a gray Patagonia vest. If anyone has seen it, he would greatly appreciate it if you would let him know. Uh, if anyone does see one, see Alan, let him know, because he, he loves that vest and he is missing it if very much. Man loves his vest. All right. Uh, many thanks are in order for this week, so uh, we'll take the opportunity to thank folks. Uh, one, uh, on behalf of the uh, of the Birchfields, they want to thank the church body for the surprise party uh, for their adoption for Sophia that was Wednesday, and also the uh, the wonderful gift that the church donated to them. So uh, I just want to announce that. Thank you from the Birchfields. They really appreciate that. Um, also, thank you to Kelly and the Groves for hosting and organizing our uh, fall festival, which we had yesterday, which turned into Rainfest 2021. Uh, lots of fun and great pictures on Discord. If you missed that, you missed quite an event uh, that happened in the rain. So, But we had a, a great time. So thank you guys for hosting that. Thank you, Kelly, for putting that on, pulling all that stuff together. Thank you, everybody who uh, attended. And congratulations to Sarah for winning the uh, chili cook-off. So she, she, she won that. <laughs> A little bit of a tension. That was that was quite the quite the contest there. So, uh, also thank you for uh, Lissandra and uh, for putting on the shower for the uh, uh, for the Wilsons last week. They really really appreciated that. They were touched by that. Um, and thank you for everybody who was able to come and, and attend and give encouragement to them as they're expecting their baby coming soon. Uh, let's see. All right. And then uh, if you missed it last week, um, we're starting a new study in the children's moment. We're going to be looking at 16 different uh, sets of verses from Scripture that teach how does the whole, how do the many little stories of the Bible come together to tell one big story of God's glory. And we're going to be going through the book. The book we're using as a guide for that is by Chris Bruno. It's called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. Um, and there were 12 of those books that were donated to the church that are free to anybody who wants them. There's still a few left over here on the teal table. So if you're interested in, in those, you want to use that as a tool to help disciple your kids, or even that's something you want to just go through on your own. Um, you know, certainly do it. The book is written for an adult audience, but the content can be easily taken and explained on a very simple child's level, and that's what we're, we're trying to do, to help model that for, for parents and families. How do you teach, take biblical concepts that are, can be very difficult and teach it on a very simple level to children? All right, so just a reminder about the, that and those free books that are available for you. Okay, this evening there will be no young girls Bible study um, uh, in, in lieu of uh, uh, Halloween trick-or-treating, all the events and things that won't take place this evening. So uh, young ladies, y'all will meet next week uh, to pick back up where you left off. Uh, next Sunday morning, 7.30 a.m., deacons meeting. Deacons, make note of that. That's going to be our monthly meeting. Uh, will be next Sunday. Uh, also, Jake Elliott, where is Jake? Are they out? There he is. Jake is going to be preaching next Sunday. Uh, so he's going to have an opportunity to preach again, preach next Sunday. Uh, and he'll be going, he'll be picking up w with the next set of verses in, uh, in Galatians. So you guys can be praying for him as he studies uh, and brings some expository preaching to us uh, next week. All right, uh, ladies' brunch will be November 13th at 10.30 a.m. That's going to be at the Dixon's house. 
Uh, ladies, bring your favorite brunch dish. That should be a, a good time of fellowship. If you have questions or anything, that's open to anyone in the church, any guests as well. If you have questions, see Natalie or see uh, Tracy uh, for more details on that. Uh, also, we're going to have our second youth brainstorming meeting coming up uh, in mid-November. Keep at, uh, tabs on that. More details as for a specific date and time. Um, but we're going to try and do that sometime mid-November before the Thanksgiving holidays. Uh, let's see. Also, team leaders meeting will be the first Sunday in December at 6.30. Team leaders, mark your calendar for that. Um, I think that's all as far as scheduled events. Uh, just a, a, a note, we are working on safety and security policies and procedures. We're going to be calling a meeting sometime soon for anybody who's interested in being on that team. Uh, we'll have more details as we come, but just want to let you know that's been in the background, kind of on the back burner, and we're bringing that more to the forefront. We're writing those policies and procedures right now. So just, just to give you as a church body a heads up that we are working on that, and that will hopefully come to fruition here soon. I think that's it. Did I miss anything? No. All right. We're called to worship this morning. It comes from the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, context for this, uh, the Arameans, a far nation, were warring against Israel. And the Aramean uh, army had come to attack Israel and Elijah had prayed that the Lord would strike them with blindness and he did and Elijah led them to the city of Samaria and asked the Lord would remove that blindness. So the band of marauders were essentially taken captive by the sovereign grace of God uh, essentially and Elijah comes to the king and we pick up in verse 21 and says then the king of Israel when he saw them when he saw the marauding band that was before them said to Elijah my father shall I kill them shall I kill them. And he answered, no, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Let's pray. Father God, as we come this morning, we come to worship you. And we come to think on and to be encouraged by the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. And here in this Old Testament passage, we're reminded of the mercy and grace that you show before your captives. For Father, if we're in Christ, we remember that we were once alienated from you, separated. We were enemies of you. We were much like that marauding band of the Arameans, Father, set against you as our king. And Father, through your grace, you blinded us, brought us into your camp, Set us before Jesus, who is our great prophet and priest and king. And what grace you have shown us. For Father, while you would be just in destroying us for our own wickedness, you laid before us bread which we could not buy. You laid before us a wellspring of life that flows with living water. And you said, here, take and eat. And Father, how much better is your mercy than the king of Israel? For while he released them to return to their old master, Father, you have made us new, that we would have an allegiance to a new master. The grace and mercy of Jesus who comes to us and says, set your burdens on me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the grace and mercy that you have shown us, Father, that we come and worship you this morning. So, Father, would you please be, would you be pleased to be in our midst as we worship you this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Please stand and let's sing together. Thank you. 
I'd like to invite you up to uh, join Pastor Austin. All right. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. All right. Well, we've started our new study. Okay. If you weren't here last week, uh, we finished the book, Big Truths for Young Hearts, right? Big ideas about who God is and who we are made in His image and why Jesus matters, right? And we're starting a new study, okay? We're going to start a new study that shows how do all the little stories in the Bible come together to tell one big story about God and His glory and our part in displaying that glory, 
Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go through 16 sets of verses that you guys are going to work on memorizing. Okay, I hope you do this at home so that you'll have 16 verses in your head. When somebody says, what's the Bible about? You can say, well, let me tell you. Okay, all right, so last week we started in Genesis. Okay, that's at the beginning, and we, we talked about what God had done, right? God made stuff, right? God made stuff. Okay, he made stuff. He made it for his glory. And what did he say? When he got to the end of creation, he said it was what? Very good. good. Now, that was part of our scripture verse. Okay, so let's see if we can recite that scripture verse. Okay, everybody repeat after me. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 1, 31. Good, good, good. I see y'all are working on that. Keep working on that, okay? That's right, that's right. We posted it up so you guys could see it. Okay, good, good. Well, we got a new verse today, okay? New set of verses. All right, remember last week, we talked about God, His creation. Okay, He made all things and it was good. It was very good. Okay, but I said last week, I gave you kind of a teaser, okay, that God decided He, he didn't want to rule all of His creation alone, So this week, we're going to look at something about us, okay? When God made people, when God made man, okay? So here's our verse, okay? That's actually two verses, okay? Two verses. This is Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So I want you to listen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Now that may seem like a lot, right? Okay, let me give you an encouragement. Parents, y'all listen. If you're younger, chi- younger kids, if you have trouble memorizing, just do that first verse, okay, that we were created in the image of God. That's the key thing. Okay, for older, older kids, okay, if you're, if you're doing good with memory, okay, do both of those verses, but only do one at a time, okay? So you work maybe Monday, Tuesday, you know, you work on, the, on verse 27, and then on Wednesday, you add 28, okay? That's a good way to break up longer section of Scripture and memorize them in little chunks, okay? All right, so that's just a tip for you guys and for your parents as well, okay? So let's talk about this, okay? It said that God made people... In his image, okay, we were created. He created Adam and Eve in, the, in, in his own image, okay? They were to serve as his image bearers. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? Okay, because the Bible says that God is spirit, okay? Hang on a minute, okay? Think about it. What, is, what does that mean that we're created in the image of God? Just think about that for a minute, okay? Go ahead, Calvin. Okay, absolutely, right, and he created us unique, you know, people, humans are the only created being that, that God says, you're made in my image, okay, you guys listening up, okay, all right, so what does that mean, well, very simply, it means that we are God's representatives, okay, we are representative, we are his representatives here on earth, and that God has created us able to accomplish the task that he's given us to do, okay? So what God has given us to do, all right, we're going to talk about that in a minute. He's created us and fit us for that, so we're able to do that task, okay? So that's kind of in a nutshell what it means to be made in the image of God, okay? That 
we share many of the characteristics that God has himself, okay? In the way that we think, in the way that we create, right? In the way, the way that we understand ourselves and we relate to one another and relate to each other, okay? So we're made in the image of God. Now, what did you notice about that first verse? If you were paying attention, right? Who, who did God make in his image, Adam or Eve? Both of them. That's right. That's right. So both of them, Adam and Eve, male and female, have dignity and value and worth, and they're the same. That dignity, value, and worth is the same because they're both made in the image of God. And that's very, very important as we understand how God sees us, whether we're a boy or a girl, okay, and our value. All right, so that's very, very important. Now, these roles, they have two specific things. So let's talk about this. What did God tell Adam and Eve? Okay, he said, one, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, so God desi desired for Adam and Eve to have children, wanted more image bearers. Okay, so we say children are a good thing and a glorious thing because God gave them that mandate and he said, this is very, very good, right? I want more of my image bearers to fill the earth, Okay, but not only that, all right, he tells us something else. Where did God put Adam and Eve? Did he put them up on a mountain? Did he put them in the bottom of the ocean? Where did he put them? In a garden. That's right. He put them in a garden. Okay, Genesis 2.8 tells us that God put man in the garden, right? Told him to cultivate it. And do you know where God met with Adam and Eve? In the garden. Do you know what that, t that tells you? That tells you that there was a place outside the garden where people were not, where God was not meeting with people, okay? And so when God says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it, he says, I want you to take this relationship that you have with me, okay? And, and my dominion and where my kingdom is and you're my representatives and you're displaying my glory to all of creation, okay? I want you to do that. I want you to teach your children and I want them to go outside the garden. I want them to spread this dominion all over the earth, Okay, that's a pretty awesome task, isn't it? Right? That's a pretty amazing task to expand God's dominion and do it in a way that's honoring to him. Okay, so the place isn't what's mostly important. It's the purpose. Okay, that wherever God's people are, wherever God has people, they're to carry out his rule and his, his dominion, to honor him in all that they do. Okay, basically to make God's glory and his blessings known, to put it on display. We could say maybe that Adam and Eve had the first missionary commission, right? Right? That's pretty awesome, okay? Well, there's a second thing that he said, right? In verse 28, he says, have dominion over the earth, particularly over the animals, over the things, okay? Now, that's not a license that, okay, you know what? I have a right to basically go out and burn whatever I want to to destroy creation and then just move on, right? That's not what, that's not, that's not what he's saying, right? What God had intended was that people would be good stewards of creation. Do you know what steward means? It means you're responsible with something that's given to you, right? And so with the intention was that Adam and Eve, when they look at creation, and Adam's naming all the animals, and they're cultivating, and they're taking care of the garden, they're, they're interacting with creation, that they have in their mind, okay, I have this relationship with God. I'm getting to know God more. He's meeting with me. Right? I'm getting to know who he is, and I'm made in his image, which means, are you listening? Are you, which means that I'm learning more about what it means to rightly reflect God. I'm also learning what it means to care for his creation in a way that honors him. 
Okay, so Adam and Eve, when they're thinking about how should I care for creation, they're thinking about how would God care for this animal? How would God care for this part of the garden? What would bring honor and glory to God? Okay, so that's part of that mandate, that responsibility. To have dominion over it doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want, but that as people being made in God's image, our responsibility is to, is to manage creation, manage the world around us in a way that brings glory to Him. But we've got to spend time with Him, and we've got to know Him if that's going to happen, right? Okay? All right, so we're to be good stewards of creation. All right, so let's kind of bring this as a summary, and I'll bring, bring it to a close. Okay, God created all of creation, right? He made a kingdom, all right, and He's king over it. That's what we learned last week, okay? But then He also, He gave the responsibility to Adam and Eve, who were made in His image, to echo God's loving care of creation wherever they lived, right, and all of their children, okay? So that's the idea so far. Now, God, that's a special relationship that God has with people, okay? All right, that people weren't just the, the result of millions of years of evolution, okay? That God created people special and different from all the rest of his creation. And that special relationship that God has with people, we call that a covenant. That's a covenant relationship. Everybody say covenant. Covenant, good. That's a good $10 word. Use it in school this next week, okay? All right, that's a covenant relationship. Now, we're going to learn more about that as we go on, but I wanted to bring that word to you this morning because it's important to know, all right? So God has a special relationship with people when people have the charge in the garden, right, to make more image bearers, okay, teach them about God and their relationship with him, and then to spread through the earth and care for the earth and carry God's dominion and his glory throughout the earth in a way that brings honor to him, okay? Now, that's the picture. That's the ideal, all right? Now, I'll give you a teaser for next week. We look around us and we say, there's something wrong because people aren't really doing that, are they? There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of wars. There's a lot of misuse of relationships, of things, right? Somebody dropped the ball somewhere, didn't they? Yeah. All right, well, next week we're going to talk about that. Next week we're going to talk about what happened in the garden when the ball got dropped all right, and that ideal picture got shattered. All right, so you come back next week. But this week, I want you guys to work on memorizing those two verses. Okay, I'll post that on Discord for your parents to see. All right, I'll give some tips on how to help memorize those things. All right, but I encourage you guys to do that at home. All right, well, let me pray for us, okay? And then you guys can be dismissed to go to your classes. Just a minute, okay? You, if you're going to, uh, to Children's Church at, uh, just across the street, you can meet Miss Leslie right back there at the door. All right, let's pray, and then you, can, then you can ask me a question. All right, Father God, Lord, we thank you. What a wonderful gift it is to be made in your image, Father. May we bear that responsibility. Um, may we feel the weight of it, Father. Um, not that it's a giant burden, but, Father, that it is a freeing gift of grace from you. Uh, and, Lord, I pray that these little minds would think about what it means to be made in your image. And as they interact with things in their world, Father, from trees and bugs and little animals to pets to even people, Father, that they would think about living in relationship with the world around them in a way that brings honor to you. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. Y'all would stand with us for two more songs.
enslaved to the fear and the darkness held within all the weight of my sin my shame by his grace purified in redeeming sacrifice living hope that won't spoil or fade i am washed by the blood of the son on the cross i am washed by the blood of the lamb all my guilt all my shame for his wounds and his pain
you but I, I love being here on Sunday mornings like I, I really love worshiping here with you not just because I'm a pastor because I, re, I really love it um, I hope you do too um, there's just there's a, there's a fittedness about coming and worshiping and thinking on the mercy and grace of God when so many other things even necessary things distract us throughout the week um, so I just I want to just want to say that I want to thank thank you band especially for the hard work you put into uh, to, to practicing and bringing these wonderful songs uh, so that we can praise God through them. So just thank you. Thank you for that. Um, before Alan comes to preach, let me, let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you and we've lifted high your name in song. And we can do that because of the words we've sung. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's only through the shed blood of Christ that we can approach your throne as Paul says, we can come 
boldly before you. Not on our merit, not because there's anything good within us, but because of the mercy and grace that was shed for us on Calvary. And so, Father, we give you praise and we give you glory. And, Lord, we lift up for you the missionaries we support in Bangladesh and Ireland and China and other parts of the world. Who, Father, pray are worshiping you with others from those countries this morning. I know many of them, because of restrictions, because of COVID, because of all the things that are going on in the world, they've been displaced from those countries and they're, they're here in the States and they're longing to be back. And so, Father, pray twofold. One, that for those who are absent to the work that you have called them to, you would con- continue to give them a holy internal disruption that, Father, Father, causes them to be unsettled with anything that they are doing right now. Father, they would be faithful in the task that you've given them to for the season they are. Father, they would continue to have the burning desire to go back to the country you've called them to, to take the gospel to the nations. That's a special gift. That's a special calling, Father. I pray that you you wouldn't quench that flame in their hearts, but they would continue to be faithful in prayer and communication to those areas where they have served and that you would bring them back there quickly. And Father, for the for the missionaries who are still on the field, who are there, Father, that you would give them sober minds in regards to the task at hand, Father, to make Christ known, and Father, that you would give them courage and discipline, give them the words to speak, to take the gospel to the people around them. And Father, you might be glorified in all people groups, Father, in all people who are made in your image, that they might rightly reflect you through the grace given to them in Jesus. And so, Father, now as Alan comes, I pray that, Lord, we, as being your image bearers, might think on what it means to use our freedom in Christ in loving service towards others, and that this is the chief aim of displaying your love and your mercy to a broken and lost world. So, Father, bless Alan as he comes and he brings your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So you can open, open your copy of the scriptures to Galatians chapter 5. I want to echo what Austin said by way of thanks for those who served yesterday, um, both in setting up and cleaning up and all those fun things. Uh, it is... It is not lost on us that we do have some tremendous servants here in in the church. I mean, just a great example this morning. This morning, so April April O'Neill is sick um, of Aaron or a cold. I don't know what it is, but she's sick. And so she obviously wasn't here singing, but she was supposed to be with Catherine downstairs. Well, you can't man that down there by yourself. It's just it's overwhelming. And so the Vaughn stepped up and swapped with Catherine and with, uh, with April. And so it's just an example of people that step up in very tangible ways. And for that, we are, we are so thankful because we see it all the time. Uh, some people step up behind the scenes and do things for folks that we never even hear of. Um, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, or, or maybe you don't hear of. We hear of some of those things, but some things are happening that we, that we don't even hear of. So we're encouraged. So I just wanted you to know that. So hopefully you will be encouraged as well. Uh, so Galatians chapter 5, so if you're visiting with us today, let me just tell you what I basically say anytime we have visitors, and that is that we walk through books of the Bible here. After we finish books, sometimes we go through a series, something that's relevant, 
something that will uh, that that we feel the Bible speaks to, uh, so that we can kind of see what the Bible has to say, a biblical perspective on how to deal with something in our culture or whatever. So, but uh, we've gone through several books of the Bible since uh, we were born as a local church. But uh, so that brings us to the book of Galatians. So Galatians chapter five, we walk verse by verse and preach uh, expository sermons expositionally. And last week, we looked at four warnings, or we, we saw four warnings, but we only dealt with three. So let me kind of give a recap of what those things are, because today's message is going to be more of the application portion of last week's sermon. So we walked through and kind of looked at the content here and kind of exposed what those things meant, but now we want to kind of apply some things, because Paul turns a very sharp corner in these next few verses that we're going to get to momentarily. And it's important that you see why he turns that corner, why he provides a contrast, and how those things apply to you and how they apply to me. So, Galatians chapter 5, let me just read through, and I'll share with you kind of just a recap of what we talked about last week. Paul said, for freedom Christ has set you free. He says, "Uh, stand firm, therefore do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to thinking that you need to be law keepers in order to be right with Jesus, in order to be right with God. He says, look, I, Paul, I I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So the first warning that we offered was a warning to those who follow or pursue a false gospel. We looked at warnings there. Paul had very strong language for those. He says, Christ is of no advantage to you. He says, uh, you're severed from Christ. You fall away from grace, things like that. So not easy language to digest, but we looked at that. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Again, that's what these people who had come in infiltrating the church were, were teaching. They were teaching circumcision. You need to be circumcised. Paul says they're adding to the gospel, which creates a false gospel altogether. So he's warning them against those things. He said, uh, if you go the way of circumcision, then you're obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We looked at the danger of sin entering the camp. We looked at the danger of what happens when we entertain those things instead of dealing with those sins. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. By the way, I didn't mention this last week, but I want to mention it now. This is not confidence that Paul has in the Galatians. This is not a confidence that he has in mere men, but this is confidence in the keeping power of the gospel. When he says, I'm pretty confident that you're not going to turn away. I mean, things are looking kind of dicey and maybe you're on a slippery slope, but he's saying, my confidence is not in your own keeping power, but in the gospel's keeping power, okay? Um, Which is a tremendous hope for us because I can look at my children And I can look at my children who profess Jesus. And what does a Christian parent want more than anything in this life? We want our kids to know Jesus. We want to know that one day, one day we will spend eternity united together as brothers and sisters honoring the Lamb. Right? That's what we want. 
And so we see our kids who claim to be Christians, maybe sometimes not acting like Christians. And there's a temptation in me as a dad to get out the, uh, the, the spiritual whip and say, well, we've got to keep these things in line. I've got to keep them. But then I have to step back and say, I can't keep them. Thank God it's not my job. The gospel has the keeping power. And so I trust in that. So this is a, that, I find that very encouraging, even though I didn't teach on that aspect. And so he expresses this confidence in the Lord, he says. Then he says, but if I, brothers, verse 11, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. So he speaks, we talked about imprecatory language. He speaks words of imprecation, these words of damnation, these harsh words that he, that he kind of pronounces on them. By the way, in the, in the, in the realm of imprecatory prayer, if you, if you, if you stole my, my vest, uh, I don't want to go there, but I might go imprecatory on you. Okay, so just, you know, just a, a fair warning. So uh, anyway, so um, he says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who, who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Here we go to the text we're going to be in today. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So, we'll be looking at Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. And here's my objective today. To see how Christian liberty, Christian freedom, is best exhibited through love. He says, for freedom, you've been set free. We talked two weeks ago about the two categories of freedom, freed from, freed to. You are free to love in a way that God is honored, in a way that God enables you to love. This is a good thing. Christians can love in a way that non-believers can love. We love in a very specific way. We love in a way that is filtered through Jesus and his righteousness. We love in a way because God first loved us. So there's something unique and something special and specific about the way a believer can love. I'm not saying that an unbeliever can't love. I'm not saying that an unbeliever can't feel. I'm not saying an unbeliever can't be a good dad, can't be a good mom, can't be a good husband, can't be a good father. I'm saying that in the context of the realm of Christianity, there is a certain equipping that God gives his own to love in a way that represents him more fully. We talked about that two weeks ago. So here we go, the practical side of this sermon. But before we get to that, I've got to deal with the fourth, the fourth warning, not using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So here's the fourth warning, a warning to those who would abuse their freedoms, because this happens. I've mentioned this before, but let me just go ahead and say it again. Be careful. Be careful that you don't delve into a world of doing things because Christ sets you free. I've, I've, I've known a lot of people, let's say, and, I, and I'll use myself as an example. I have tattoos, right? I've come to terms with what the Bible teaches on that, and I don't think that I'm in any breach of what the Bible allows for me as a follower of Christ. You know, I think, it's a, I think there's a context issue. I think it's those, those, that language is written specifically to Israel. I think there's, uh, there was paganism happening. I think there's a lot of things. I think my body is a temple. 
And someone would say to me, well, your body's a temple, not a canvas. I get that. That's fine. And I'm not going to pick a fight with anybody. But at the same time, that context is in the context of sexual immorality. It has nothing to do with tattoos. So for me, I'm okay with it. Now, if I'm saying to you, I have tattoos because Jesus gave me freedom to have tattoos. That is not why Jesus died. He did not die so you could have alcohol. He did not die so that you could have cigars on Reformation Day, by the way. He did not die so that you could get tattoos or I could get tattoos. That's not why he died. He died to set you free from the slavery of sin. So let's not confuse or conflate the issue. That's very important because it is offensive if someone says, well, I, I'm died to, I, Jesus freed me so that I can drink or Jesus set me free so that I could get tattoos. And people use that as an excuse when they, when they can't really work their way through the text and make a, make a biblical argument for or against. So be careful of those things. But there's a warning here. There's a warning here. Beware of your liberty turning to license. For you were called to freedom, freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. How does Paul use the word flesh here? Oftentimes the word flesh is used just, just as your skin, epidermis, whatever, your literal flesh. But here the connotation behind the word has to do with, uh, it, it has a negative connotation. Uh, do not entertain the desires of the flesh. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's the, the sin nature the, the world and the enemy that appeals to the broken part of you, you know, the fallen aspect of the sinful nature, that's, that's the flesh. That's what he means. Do not, your, your freedom is not so that you can give opportunity for the flesh. So here's what I would say. Remember, this would have been at the end of last week. So here's what I would say to those who would use their freedoms in the inappropriate way. I would think those who abuse freedom, they have a perverted relationship with grace. They misunderstand grace. I mean, Paul deals with this. This is nothing new. We ran into people like this too, but Paul dealt with it in Romans. You know, he says, listen, grace, uh, you know, sin doesn't increase so that grace may abound. Or he poses it as a question and he answers his own rhetorical question and says, may that never be. He said, that's ridiculous. You know, we don't, we don't. We don't sin so that we can build our testimony, our testimony of God's grace. We don't run towards sin to say, well, God's going to forgive me. I'm going to bank on grace. That's a perversion or a perverted relationship with grace. So those who abuse freedom have a perverted relationship with grace. Those who abuse freedom misunderstand gospel transformation. If you're abusing those freedoms, if you're using those freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh... And you misunderstand what gospel transformation is and what it looks like. Gospel transformation initiates God's sanctifying work in your life. If God is sanctifying you, He's removing you from that pollution of sin. He doesn't take away the fact that you're a sinner, your sin nature's not gone, that doesn't happen yet, that happens at redemption, glorification, all that fun stuff. But right now we wrestle, we, 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 we wage war against sin with the Spirit of God in us. The gospel transformation initiates God's sanctifying work, which means that we become more like Jesus and less like the old self. There is an immediate transformation, an immediate change, a newness, no doubt about it. But some of the temptations are still there. Some of my, what I'm drawn to from the old self, it's, it's, it's still there. But I have a new way of looking at that. You know, my desire is still there in the flesh to entertain or appease the flesh, to abuse those freedoms. But the Spirit of God in me 
works actively, the transformation and the new identity that I've been given says, but I have a greater treasure now. It's not, it's not, it's no longer that. It's no longer whatever, whatever your sin is, whatever it is that you've committed, whatever, it's, it's, that's not your treasure anymore. Is it enticing? Absolutely. It is. One day it won't be, and we won't know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> so I think if you abuse freedom, you misunderstand what gospel transformation is. So it's important if you're talking to somebody who has this freedom-abusing relationship, who has this perverted relationship with grace, that you speak truth to them. And you say, I think you've misunderstood the, the scope of gospel transformation. You know, it, it does flip everything on its head, but it continually changes you. It immediately changes your status, dead to alive. But there's this growth. There's this sanctification. There's this continual salvific work. Those who abuse freedom not only misunderstand gospel transformation, but they don't fully understand freedom. Christ died to set you free from the slavery of sin, so simply put, stop sinning. I don't know if you've ever seen this video. I've seen it several, you probably have, but it's always funny. Um, Bob Newhart, you know where I'm going already, all right? So laugh at it anyway, all right? So more imprecatory coming your way if you don't. So I think, so there's this guy who comes into Bob Newhart's office, and he's talking about some sin. I keep doing this, I keep doing this. He goes, okay, okay, well, explain to me the nature of this, what's happening. He says, all right, here's my, here's my advice. He's a counselor. He leans in, he says, stop it. That's his advice. Stop it. No, but you, okay, I get that, but you don't understand this and this. And Bob leans in further and says, okay, let me, let, me be, let, me, let me explain myself a little better. Stop it. And he starts yelling at the guy. You know, and that, that's kind of, that's, that's a simplification. I get that. You know, you, you come to me and you say, hey, I've, I've, here, here's my sin. Here's my struggle. And I just say, stop it. Next. You know, this is not a confession booth. You know, we're not, that's not how it works. You know, let's get to root issues. Let's talk about things. But in a sense, that is the idea. So you've been, you've been freed from that, so stop doing that. You know, quit acting like a slave when you're not one. Quit running to the yoke when you, it doesn't belong around your neck. You know, and so that's kind of the, the, the advice. Um, we always deal with people kind of gently and gingerly, but I'm, I'm just, there's a temptation. There's a temptation. If it wasn't a, a, a sobering time for someone to come and say, pray for me, I, I, I'm in this sin. And I just said, stop it, you know. <laughs> I don't know if it would go over well, but that's, in th that's what I say to myself with my own sin, you know, and I call myself a few names, you know, I mean, that's how I deal with myself. Um, so I think those who abuse freedom, abuse freedom don't fully understand freedom. And finally, I think those who abuse freedom ultimately run a high risk of promoting a false gospel. And here's what I mean. Earlier in the text, Paul made it clear that this addition or, or perversion of the gospel made it a false gospel. If we live as though Christ died so that we could sin, we effectively promote a false gospel. Because the gospel, if it sets you free from sin, but we constantly run to it, do we bear false witness? You know, and these are things that happen all the time in our lives, you know, without even thinking about it. But it should be a sobering moment to think, I could be at risk of misrepresenting the actual gospel. I could be at risk of actually promoting a false gospel. So here's my question. What does freedom or Christian liberty, what, what does the freedom that Christ has purchased for you produce in you? 
Is it purity or is it perversion? Answer that question and you will know whether or not you're using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So, that's the fourth warning that Paul offers. But then something kind of interesting happens. Now Paul is going to bring into contrast something in the contrast so that we might see how we can use our freedom the right way as opposed to using it as an opportunity for the flesh. Listen to this. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But that conjunction is there for a reason. The way he, uh, I don't know if the word is, is juxtapositions or whatever, the way he places this next phrase right here, or the, 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 the whole next verse don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I'm having a hard time with words today, Clayton. Through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where we're going to be for a little while. Here's the practical application of all of these things. So he gives this warning. He gives these warnings. And he kind of ends up with this, don't indulge the flesh. Because the flesh is what, when we do that, when we give opportunity to the flesh, what is that at its root? Idolatry. You think about it. Any sin that you commit, I would argue, is idolatry. Because it's all about how you're going to feel. It's what you want to get out of it. Oh, no, no, no. My wife, she made me so mad, and I just, I just blurted out. Why did you blurt out? You're saying that she's the problem. She's the catalyst. Sorry, I don't mean to point at my wife there. You're saying that your wife's the problem, <laughs> that she's the catalyst. No, no, no. She might have been a part of the opportunity that led to your sin, but you are responsible for your sin. This is exactly what James teaches us. He says, what's the reason for the fighting and the quarreling among you? It's because you, 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 you desire and you do not have. He said, it's all rooted in the desires of your heart. So we sin because we want to sin. Because of our own idolatry. Oh, but she made me so mad. I was keeping the peace. I was holding my breath. I was holding my tongue. And she just kept going and kept going and kept going. She threw things at me. And finally, I just cursed her or I threw something back. Well, guess what? You did that because you wanted to get back at her. Because you wanted to show her, you're not doing that to me. You said those things because I'm the head of this house. Your pride crept in. You decided to show just how much of a man you are, right? We don't throw things at each other. So the point of Paul saying not to use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but love one another is because the opposite of flesh is love. The opposite of making an opportunity for the flesh is loving others. He's saying, do the exact opposite of what you feel most prone towards doing. So let me give you a framework for loving others. A framework for loving others. This is what Spurgeon had to say about this text. It was so funny. I listened to a little bit of a Spurgeon sermon. I wish I could hear Spurgeon in his voice, but they didn't record things like that back then. So you got some guy reading it. I'm like, you picked the wrong guy to read a Spurgeon sermon. Because that's not how I envision sermon, or, you know, think he's going to sound, you know. I mean, this guy was like, I, Charles Spurgeon. I'm like, that's not what he would sound like. You know, I mean, his voice would, would, would rumble the walls, you know. I mean, I mean. But he said this, it is as much the duty of man to preach the practical side of Christianity 
as it is the theological side. And here's the practical side. And he said to his congregation on that day hundreds of years ago, he said, you're not going to like what I have to say today because it's not theological, you know. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not theological. That's how that guy talked. <laughs> so, so here we are, the practical side of Christianity. So from the outset, I think we need to answer a few questions to set up this text. One, why would Paul include Jesus' statement on love for neighbors but leave out his statement about loving the Lord your God? I mean, that, that's how my brain works. I'm reading this, and I think, okay, so Paul's obviously quoting Jesus. Jesus quoting from the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, which Moses is just quoting Jesus before all of that, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So why would he not include that? Because love from neighbor, it is a love for neighbor, it is assumed that that comes from a love for God. That's the assumption. When he says, don't make this opportunity, but through love, serve one another. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's how you sum up the entire law. The entire law, you sum it up that way. Jesus said, this is how you sum up the law. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul just says, look, here's the assumption. If you're loving God, you will love your neighbor. So Paul didn't have to say it. The assumption is there. But exactly how do, do we produce love for a neighbor? A love for God means a love for all that he has done, all that he has made, a love for his perfections, a love for his creation. Austin's talking about the Imago Dei. He's talking about the image of God. It's a love for that. We look at what God has made and we say, you made these things and it is good. If God made us and God made things and he said it's very good, you and I should say the same thing about what God has made right? Who are you and who am I to think, yeah, he thought that was good, but I think he could do a little bit better. No, no, it's yes, yes. I mean, you, you look at me and think, yeah, that, he, made, he made something good, you know, but, you know, with Aaron, we're like, you know, you know, so, <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, buddy. I'm trying to, last week you said you got a spanking in the sermon, and this week I'm, I'm doing it again to you, you know, so. You are capable of love because you are first loved by him. You are capable of love because you are made in the image of God. And a part of being made in the image of God is that he has shared certain attributes with you so that you can reflect him in his glory. Why are you creative? Because God's creative. Why can, uh, uh, you know, some of you uh, are, are very compassionate. Why is that? Because God is compassionate. Why is it that we have a sense of justice? Because God is just. These things, culture does not teach you. You are hardwired for those things because of the image you are made in. So, second question, who do we consider to be our neighbors? This is very simple. Anyone that God providentially places in your path. Those are your neighbors. Friend, foe, Thief, robber, abuser, any of them. Those are your neighbors. So why does Paul, what does Paul mean by love? And here we get to it because I want to give you this definition or this, this explanation so that when we walk through this next little section, you can have the right definition to apply as we walk through. So what does Paul mean by love? Well, very simply, this term is uh, selfless by nature. It is others 
focused. And that's, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody here, right? We think of loving someone. We think of what we might do for someone or what we might say to someone or how we might feel towards one. And that usually has a positive connotation behind it, right? You know, except those weird occasions when mom and daddy, like in my case, uh, I do this because I love you. And then a whooping followed that. I'm like, ah, you know, it's confusing my young brain. You love me, but this hurts me. What, you know, what's, what's happening here, but I get it now, right? So love always has a positive connotation behind it. And this love here is not about feeling, but it's about doing. And that's an important distinction to make. And these are things we have talked about before. When we talk about forgiveness, when we talk about love, Sometimes we get to this place where Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. Well, how do I do that? If love is Greco-Roman, if love is what culture tells you that it is, all about a feeling, all about something that's stirring inside your bosom, if that's what love is, then how are you supposed to love an enemy? How are you supposed to love someone that mocks and scoffs at you? How are you to love someone that takes advantage of you? How do you do that? If it's about how you feel. Not to mention the fact that a Greco-Roman type of love, the love of the world, the love of Hollywood is something that's capricious. It's something that happens upon you and, it's, and, it, and it lifts away from you with a, without warning, without rhyme or reason. And I have a problem with that because if God is love and I'm looking at God's love and interpreting God's love through the lens of Hollywood love, where it's capricious, where it's here today, gone tomorrow, where it's something that you can't control, but you fall in out of, you fall out of, then I have a problem because I'm seeing God through that lens. And that means God is love, meaning maybe he loves me today. Maybe he doesn't. And that's problematic <laughs> because God doesn't change. So this term is selfless, it's others-focused, it's more about how you posture yourself towards a neighbor having their best interest at mind and heart. That's what this love is about. So we've answered those three questions, so let's move through this. For the whole law, he says, is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. And this statement, Paul, via the words of Christ, we see a command, we see the proper framework for carrying out this command. What are we to do, people? Love. Let's start there. Okay, the Bible has a little bit to say about that, so love. Let's, let's ground ourselves in that reality. We have to love. The unlovable, yes. The unlikable, yes. We have to love these people. But good, thank goodness it's not about how I feel. It's about what I do, how I posture myself, how I might look after them. Not saying that's always easy, but that's the reality. So what are we to do? Love. Who are we to love? Our neighbor. Simple. Who's our neighbor? Anybody that God providentially puts in our path. That's our neighbor. Love our neighbor. How are we to love? Now there's the kicker. I don't know if you've ever sat down and really thought about the mechanics or the implications of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's heavy. <laughs> because you love yourself. And I'll make that argument here in just a second. But that's a tall order. You've got to read it all the way through. Love your neighbor. I can do that. I can do that. You just can't on your terms. Because Jesus doesn't let you off the hook. Moses doesn't let you off the hook. God doesn't let you off the hook. Paul's not letting you off the hook. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So, let me give you an argument for self-love. I think that everyone loves themselves now 
If you're like me and where your brain goes, you're like, well, there are people that have taken their own lives. And that's a tragedy indeed. And you would say in that moment, maybe they aren't loving themselves. That is a, that is a unique situation, yes. But my argument comes from the scriptures where Paul says that no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it and loves it. And I'll, I'll, bring that, I'll bring that before you in just a second. So I'm operating from that idea, from that ideology that we do love ourselves. We are broken, yes, but we do love ourselves. We love ourselves. Listen, I drink good coffee because I love myself. You understand what I'm saying? 16 to 1 ratio, about 325 grams of hot water, 195 to 205 degrees. Man, let me tell you something. Some of you drink Folgers. You don't love yourself <laughs> at coffee hour, right? You know, uh, we don't miss meals. We don't. Maybe sometimes you do, but when you get hungry or hangry, you do what? You eat. You love yourself. Why? You don't want to die. Not only do you not want to die, but it's pretty miserable being hungry all the time. You know, anybody, anybody ever tried one of those fad diets to where they basically starve you? You're miserable, cantankerous, angry, want to punch everything in the face. You're like, this is now, this is supposed to be done. So you do what? You indulge, you feed yourself, you satisfy your craving, you satisfy that hunger, or you satisfy that thirst. Why? Because you love yourself. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. He says, in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives, or husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it just as Christ does the church. So I would argue that we do love ourselves, that we do care for ourselves. We want to live. We don't miss meals. We take vacations to just kind of relax, to kind of decompress, to de-stress. It's taking care, self-care, self-love. I'm not saying these things are bad. Stress will kill you, literally. So we do what? We take vacations. Why? Because we love ourselves. We want to live go to the gym we exercise some go to the gym just talk but you know some go to the gym and exercise and they take care of their body you know i guess at the end of the day we should be doing that because we want to be healthy we want to live we eat a certain way or should because <laughs> we love ourselves we want protection against harm you know i'm not one to throw myself to the wolves you know, if there's an angry mob and I got some policemen around me, I'm hiding behind a policeman. <laughs> hey, take them, you know. Uh, you know, um, we not only labor to love ourselves, but to ensure that others love us sometimes as much as we love ourselves. We want to be liked. You, you, you know me, I, I, I told you, my, my thing is I, I love the affirmation of men, so I like to be liked. You know, I know someone else in here, I won't name their name, but it rhymes with Revan Pill, uh, likes to be liked. You know? <laughs> Life of the party, always making, making, making folks laugh, you know, likes to be liked. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that. So we sometimes try to get that from other people. Maybe we do something, tangible gifts, tangible deeds. You know, yeah, we want to help somebody, and that should be our primary motivation to love them selflessly, to love our neighbor as ourselves in that way. But sometimes it's like, you know, I do want to help you, but I also want you to like me. You know? 
we like for people to think highly of us, so we put our best foot forward. Some of you may have been in an awful war of words with your spouse or your siblings, and you walk through the door, and it's like transformation. It's like you've never had a fight in your life. You're a living, breathing Facebook status. You know? It's always good for you. Because you want people to like you. We don't want people to read our mail out loud, see our dirty laundry, all those fun things. We, we, it's like, no, we've got our stuff together. But give us a week's notice before you show up at our doorstep. We serve people sometimes in order that we might be loved. So I do think we love ourselves. I think in a certain sense, it's right and good to love yourself. Love who God has made you. I think Christians, in the right sense, should be the most confident people in the world. Self-esteem issues should not be big issues for Christians. And I get it. These things happen. I get trauma. I get all these things. I get, I get all that we're exposed to in this broken world that creates self-esteem issues, that get these things out of balance. But if we back up and say, what do I have in Jesus? Whom do I have in Jesus? And who am I? I'm a child of the king. I can't be loved more. So we should have the most confidence. Not necessarily in ourselves, but in our king. So in a sense, I would say, yeah, we, we definitely love ourselves, and we should. Secondly, an argument for loving others. No one denies the command to love others. Just a, a snapshot here, because this is pretty easy. Jesus said that the first and second greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you've got all these laws. And it sums them up right there. And it was interesting. And Paul uses this for, for, for a reason. The Holy Spirit brings this into play in this context for a reason. Because keep in mind, they're wanting to lean on the law. They're wanting to say the law is where salvation is. And Paul basically says, listen, you want to concern yourself with the law, let's do that. Let's do that in the right way. New covenant, relationship to law, here's how it works. Love God, love people, and you have fulfilled the law this is what jesus teaches entire sections of the bible are written about love jesus taught more on love than he did hell or, or sorry no actually he taught more on hell than he did love but jesus teaches a lot on love but the biblical authors write on love all the time first uh, corinthians 13 the whole chapter teaches us what love is and what love is not who you are and who you are not if you do not have love. So there's a lot to be said about these things. Our culture is fixated on love. I mean, Wesley and I have this, uh, well, he's not in, Wesley, yeah, we're, 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 we're riding in the Jeep the other day, and uh, you've got a country station going on, and we're just keeping a tally of all the country songs that, that the theme is love. Every one of them is about love lost, love hoped for, love gained, love wanted, love misunderstood. I will, you know, this, this lady, you know, there's a fishing song. I'm going to miss her. You know, I mean, it's, it's like fishing. I love fishing. I love her, but I'm going to choose fishing. I mean, it's, it's love. There's always a guy singing about a girl, something about love. I mean, so our culture is all about love. It's just misappropriated. It's perverted. Why? Because of the fall. We should be fixated on love just in the right way. Jesus told his disciples that the world will know they belong to him by the way they what? love each other. The world will look at you and they will say they must belong to Jesus or they will recognize something unique about you. Why? Because of the way they love each other. 
love is the is one of the dominating themes of Christianity. I mean, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? John tells us that there is a correlation between being born again and loving and loving others. Listen to 1 John 4, 7. Love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows him. The morality of God represented through the law is summed up in love. So love is a big deal. So, I've given you an argument for self-love, an argument for loving others, and we could go on and on. And I want to finish with the application of loving others as yourself. So here's where it gets mechanical. How do we apply loving our neighbor as ourself? How do we apply loving our neighbors as ourselves? How do we do that rightly? How do we love rightly? How do we apply that? I think we apply to others the way that we would want to be loved. Is that not the golden rule, right? It's do unto others you would have them do unto you. And that's, that's love. That's what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. So in every category, every context, every scenario, you know that the command is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to go into that thinking, how would I want to be loved rightly in this category? So what I'm going to do is briefly present to you a few categories and how what love might look like in those categories. Like I told you, this is, this is the application portion of last week's sermon, basically. So first of all, the category of sin. Love one another enough not to allow sin to be unchecked. Love the church enough not to allow a little leaven to enter in and leaven the whole lump. We talked about that last week. Because listen to this. Refusal to confront sinful conduct is not just unloving. But in a very bad way, it is self-loving. Let me explain what I mean by that. Why do we refuse to confront sin? Because we get uncomfortable. Because we don't want to hinder our status with that person. Because we want to be liked. We want to be loved. We don't want to confront sin because it makes us feel awkward. Do you, do, do you see the idolatrous theme that runs through this? It's self-love because, in, in, a, in a bad way because they need this. But as much as they need this, as much as they need this love, I love myself more. I don't love them enough to say what's absolutely essential for them. But I love myself enough not to make things awkward. We refuse to confront, confront sin sometimes because it's dramatic, because it's messy. <laughs> Somebody might get mad. I've, I mean, I know I'm not the only one in here, and some of you much more than me, but I mean, I've, I mean, I've been threatened, you know, just sharing the gospel, talking about sin, you know. I've, I've, you know, people get upset. I mean, it's messy, right? Those were unbelievers, but I'm talking about unbelievers and believers. It just gets messy. We don't like the discomfort. We don't like the drama. We don't like the messiness. So we become selfish. And it's a misappropriated self-love. 
Love the sinner as you love yourself is the command. We get offended, mad, disgruntled if someone confronts us over sin. I'm speaking in general terms. I know that. I'm not saying, hey, you, or I've talked to you before, and you got all hot and bothered. We can do that, and that's happened, and I've seen it, and, and, and I've done that. And I mean, my, I, my wife, I can't remember what it was. It was a while ago. I mean, I rarely get, get called out, but it was a long time ago. I'm sitting there, I, something's going on, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a mood, all the feels, all that stuff. And she's like, well, she starts speaking gospel to me. And, and as sad as it is, I feel myself getting frustrated. I mean, there's a pride aspect that says, hey, I'm your pastor. I mean, really. I mean, that's, it's, it, I'm, you, you know me, I'm, I'm kind of an open book. I didn't say that to her. I didn't say that. I just, I didn't want to hear it at the moment. I needed to. I needed to hear, this is who you are in Jesus. Why are you thinking that way? You know, uh, whatever it was. I don't know if you remember that. You know, I get, you know, those things happen so seldom, you know. Uh, <laughs> but that, that does happen, you know. And I said, Ugh, I don't like it, you know. I'm sure she didn't just love it. <laughs> Maybe she did. We get offended, mad, disgruntled if someone confronts us over sin. But here's the kicker. Listen to this. If you knew that something was destroying you from the inside out, You would want it taken care of, right? So to love others as yourself means you may not get that this is destroying you from the inside out. You may not see that this is isolating you from the body. You may not see that this is a detriment to your relationship and walk with Christ. But I do. And it needs to be killed. It needs to be eradicated. It needs to be taken out of your life. It needs to be confronted. That's what it means to... Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's apply that same self-love to others. When you do, you have someone confronting sin, not because they hate you, not uh, not because they hate you and want you to be embarrassed or to fail, but because they love you and want you to thrive. And I think typically when the dust settles, when one Christian confronts another, although it's hard sometimes, I mean... The, 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 the scripture even says, he who doesn't, res- uh, a believer doesn't receive a rebuke is stupid, is, is the actual NAS translation of that, right? And so it's, it's, it's there, you know, take that as a loving thing. So that's a category of sin, category of service, quickly. These are tangible ways of loving others, tangible ways, providing meals, visiting hospitals, pushing cars out of the street uh, that, are, that are broke down, pleading with mamas for the lives of their unborn children, whatever. These are, these are tangible ways to step in and say, I- I'm showing love to you. Yeah, you, you've got that piano you want to help move. I'll call Austin. He'll be right over. This is a tangible way for me to help you out. That's great. That is a, that's the category of service. So you ask yourself, how would I want to be shown love through service? If you were in a financial bind, it would mean the world to you for someone to step in and say, let me help you out. If you were moving, it would matter to you that someone would show up to help you move. In order to love others... As ourselves, we direct the love we would want shown to us onto them the same way. Pretty simple. The category of service. The category of community. Loving one another by opening up our lives to one another. This moves beyond the tangibles. The tangibles are pretty easy. Make a little bit of time, show up, offer a little bit of time. And we're back to life as usual. And I'm not saying that's not good because it is. I know when the deals moved, Catherine uh, posted how thankful she was that people helped her move, helped them move. Those, those are great things to do, right? Those are the tangibles. But 
in the category of community, it moves a little bit beyond tangibles. It's one thing to help someone move, but it's another thing to open up your life and invite someone in. Not easy. It takes time, sacrifice. It may take giving up some of these extracurricular things to make time for what matters. I think micro-community, I think the one-on-one relationship, family-to-family, I think that is where community really gets built. This is, you're sitting here listening to me. I mean, conversations are going on, you know, the last 30 minutes. You know, I mean, you're, you're listening. That's what this is for, to be washed with the water of the word, to be encouraged so that you can gather and then scatter, right? And not just missional community, because that's a great place to build that community. You know, but even that's not the best format. But opening up your lives and saying, you come and be a part of my life. That's where these things really start to take place. It's one thing to invite people to a Sunday gathering. It's one thing to invite someone to a missional community. But it's a completely different thing to invite someone into your life. But we don't always have time for that, do we? We don't have the stomach for that always. We don't have the patience for that always. We don't have the chemistry for that. That person's different. (laughs) You know, that person likes these kind of things, and that's just not who we are. We're an outdoorsy family, and they're more of a, you know, settlers of Catan family. You know, I love both, by the way. I'm very balanced like that, right? (laughs) So um, sometimes we don't, I mean, these things become boundaries. These things become walls. The issue is that we, and let me speak very generally, fill our days with a bunch bunch of extracurricular things that don't matter in eternity. And I am speaking to myself because we have a kid in dance, a kid that plays baseball, a kid that played basketball, a kid that likes to fish. I mean, we have a lot of things going on. I told Sarah this week, there was just a day this week where I was, I felt like I was driving one kid to one, going to another, going all over the place. And I was just tired of, I was just tired of toting kids everywhere. I'm like, I'm tired of it. She's like, welcome to parenting. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt that way. Like, that's our life. That's our life. And these are good things, right? Yeah, we want Marley to dance. Man, she's going in there. She's socializing with people. She's, she's doing all that. She's, she's, she's learning a, a hobby, something fun. You know, that's great. And we like to go watch her, and these are memories. We take pictures. They make it to photo albums. And then I'm threatened with my life if I don't rescue them, if the house is on fire. You know, all of these things. My son, you know, Calvin played baseball this year. We call him Lightning on Wheels because he played center field but just was determined to run people and tag them out at home plate when they were making home runs. You know, <laughs> love doing that. Love watching him. Love doing all those things, you know. Um, Wesley's always asked us, take, can you take me here to fish? Take me there to fish. He played basketball. We go to his basketball games. And these things are great. But let me just say this, and I'm using my own example. I am, I am convicted, and I, and I don't know which, what to do with it yet. I don't want to sacrifice investing in the body, investing in people, and the altar of making memories. You see what I'm saying? Those are important things. I want there to be a balance in my life. And these are things I'm wrestling with. And just so you know, full disclosure, Sarah and I haven't really had a lot of conversation about this. So she's getting this in real time too. You know, which lunch is going to be great today. But I'm wrestling with that. You know, and this this really brought these things to mind as I was preaching. So I think if we're going to love our neighbor as ourself in the category of community, it moves beyond tangibles and it gets to opening up your life because (laughs) how else do you know someone 
And how do you really minister and love someone fully if you don't know them at all? I think the ideal would be to become intentional about clearing space for people. I think that's the business of the church. I think the church has a primary goal. That's to glorify God. I think the two vehicles through which we do that, loving the lost, we call that evangelism, loving one another, we call that community. And let me finish with this one. I'm going to make this comment. I've got two more categories, but I'm just going to do the last one um, so, so that we can go. Nora's saying it's time to go. So l- let me just say this. I'm a big person about, uh, I'm a big advocate of nat- nat- uh, your, your, your natural rhythms, right? So doing basketball, doing baseball, doing dance, doing all of these things, you know, I think those things are good. And I think a best possible redemptive scenario for those things is if we're intentional about being on mission when we're doing those things, which we don't always do the greatest job. But those are great opportunities. That's my natural rhythms. I'm out there. I'm, I'm, I'm at a game sitting with people, a lot of people sometimes. What do my conversations look like? I think that is a great, redeemable way to be that involved. But again, I think there has to be a balance. Because the Bible sure does have a lot to say about one anothering. Sure does. Final category, the category of the gospel. Very simply, what you and I need as Christians and what we needed most as pagans was the gospel and is the gospel. To love your neighbor as yourself, Christian or otherwise, with regard to the gospel means that you give them what they need most because it is also what you need most every day. Someone speaking to your identity in Jesus. That's how you deal with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look out for their, look out for their uh, deepest, greatest interest and needs. Look out for others. The gospel says this. You claim this with your identity. And I'm not saying it's always a reprimand or rebuke. I don't mean that at all. I mean encouragement, all, encouragement, all these things you speak to someone. But obviously for the non-believer, they need the gospel unto salvation. So that's how we love our neighbors well so at the end of the day one of the dominating themes of christianity is love selfless sacrificial love and we have that exemplified best and fullest in christ greater love has no one than this than someone would lay down his life for his friends and jesus did more he laid down his life for his enemies thus making them friends for while we were still helpless while we were still hostile while we were still enemies christ died for the ungodly And in Christ, we have our example of how we are to love one another, whether friend or enemy, always looking out for the interest of others. Not easy, but mandatory. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Thank you again, Lord, for another week to work through some things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the tender mercies that you provide for me, my family, for my church family. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship, to sing to you with voices that you've given us, with voices that you've designed to glorify you. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that within these four walls, we would not see it as the only context for our worship, for our faith, for our obedience, 
But Lord, that we gather for the purpose of scattering and that we would go, that we would leave, and that we would be intentional in the way that we love one another. May we be mindful and look for opportunities to love and to love well. We ask that you empower us to do that. We ask that you would show us great grace that we might do that. In Jesus' name, amen.